This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Investec Asset Management. Value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, Investec Asset Management is an authorised financial services provider. This is probably the most important podcast I've hosted this year. The subject is a just transition. In brackets, it says here, why the climate change crisis won't be solved without social justice. With me is Tom Nelson, Head of Natural Resources at Investec Asset Management in London. Tom, I have to say that it must be incredibly hot in London at the moment, as it is where I am. And that lends a very convenient backdrop to our discussion, because climate change is a reality. Yes, that's right, Lindsay. And I think what we are most interested in at this point in time, aside from the uncomfortable realities of of sweltering European cities, is to move the conversation and the dialogue along from the energy transition and effectively the almost industrial revolution that's taking place in the energy sector, to move that along to this concept of a just transition In other words, a transition which does not have unintended negative social consequences. And because it's our strong view that this transition, this decarbonization process, can only be truly successful if communities and the human population is brought along with it. That, I think, is the really interesting battleground at the moment. There is such a battleground, and we'll come to uh, battles later on, but the opening paragraph of the piece that you have written, there is a dangerous perception that the energy transition is a rich man's game, along with the lines of save the planet, forget the workers, but transitioning to a low-carbon economy presents the most significant and urgent challenge faced by all of humanity today, and we have to bring politics into this, and I didn't want to bring politics into this discussion at the forefront of the discussion, but unfortunately we have to, because there is a move towards populism and populism doesn't really recognize climate change as a concept. No and that in itself is extremely alarming and I would agree with you in that in that overall assertion and when you look around the world and look at President Trump you look at the recent electoral victory in Australia look at Viktor Orban in Hungary and dare I say it look at the history of pronouncements and articles written on this subject by our new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Yes. And it is, um, it is worrying, because at the, the very moment at which government policy needs to be changing fast in order for us to succeed in this multi-decade process of decarbonisation, we, we are uh, increasingly finding populist political leaders who, who are either skeptical on this issue or are outright deniers of climate change or of anthropogenic climate change. Um, and that is extremely, uh, extremely damaging. So it's a major, major political issue. We need strong leaders with deep conviction and leaders who are not afraid to, to take strong action. Let's get back to basics now and let's talk about the fundamentals here because you have to present your case. You, in the first couple of pages of your presentation that you've sent me, 
there is a thermometer and you say we are here 1% warming in 2018 pre-industrial average and then it goes on from there. Maybe you could give us the verbal diagram if you like. Yes, this is really the, the summary chart of the temperature increases that we've seen uh, since uh, pre-industrial times. And it's about trying to understand effectively the pathway that we are on. And we've all seen, or most of us have seen, the, uh, the most recent paper from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Um, and the conclusions there are extremely alarming. What we need today is not just a slowdown in terms of emissions and, if you like, a kind of tempering of the up-and-to-the-right chart that we've seen uh, in re- recent decades. What, what we need to see is, is for that line to move dramatically lower. Uh, as I say, this is, this is not about you know, a mild downturn. and This is about a total change in direction. And I think you know, there's, there's been an awful lot of recent research um, and some very comprehensive publications. I think the most alarming conclusion that most of them get to is that there is a level of temperature increase um, or of climate change that beyond which we simply cannot understand the likely effects and implications. And this is where you get into the concept of runaway climate change. So we can do reasonably effective modeling on uh, what the world might look like in a plus 1.5 or a plus 2 or a plus 2.5 type scenario. But once you get substantially beyond that, we really can't model with any certainty or clarity what those implications will be in terms of ice cap melting and sea level increases and weather effects, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention um, the effect on uh, agricultural yields and a number of other very important things besides. So that's, that, that's where it gets, I think, most, most frightening. And, and, and all of it really just comes back to a strong conclusion, really, that, that we need to act, we act, need to act now, you know, and that's what we're endeavouring to do. Yes, you are. In your own way, as an investment management company, there are two points that you make here. First, the view that mitigating climate change is an environmental versus social tug of war where only one prevails. Secondly, you say that the process of decarbonisation is uneconomic and that renewable technology is more expensive and less efficient than fossil fuels. You can debunk both of those points, of course. That's right. I mean, those are the two that, that, that we think are the greatest barriers or impediments between where the thinking is today and where it needs to get to. Um, if we deal with them in turn, if we, if, we, if we take the first one head on, this is the idea that of the tug of war between environmental and social. And in a sense, that's what lies at the heart of the just transition um, or the concept of the just transition, that we can do everything in our power to control global temperatures, to curb emissions, to decarbonize. But the impact of that is going to be a negative social one. In other words, people communities and workers will suffer while there is, you know, environmental improvement. And we strongly refute that. We actually believe that a move towards renewable energy and a broad-based industrial process of decarbonization can create jobs. We believe that it can improve living standards. We believe that it can improve access to cheap, sustainable forms of electricity and energy. And that actually it can it can on a on a global level it can have 
inherently positive environmental and social consequences. So it's not one or the other. And then the second part is is this view, which I think is being is being now better understood, which is really about the economics of the process of decarbonisation, because for a long time there were sceptical voices and outspoken voices who said that renewable energy was not cost competitive, that it was reliant on subsidies, um, and that actually, you know, there was a financial sacrifice in moving from hydrocarbon energy um, and, you know, carbon intensive energy to more renewable forms. And I think that the extraordinary uh, cost deflation that we've seen, particularly in solar and wind over the last 10 years, has largely, as I said, largely debunked that argument. And it's not done yet, by the way. I mean, these, these technologies are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So I think that, that part of it will, in a sense, will take care of itself because the economics are there in black and white. But I think the first part and the sense of the tug of war between environmental and social, which is, as I say, what lies at the heart of our Just Transition paper, and that is, that is the battleground. And if I, had to, if I had to sum it up, I'd say that in most jurisdictions, there is support for the process of decarbonization. There is a democratic view that this is a progressive thing for us all to undertake. But, but it comes with a caveat that people don't want to be leave, left behind. In other words, if that leads to significant job losses, community disruption, et cetera, et cetera, then there's a problem. Well, there's always a problem if your village or your town in Wales, which has been used to its reliance on coal mining, for example, loses its income because of coal becoming less economic or less relevant in the United Kingdom. Because I think you can, again, debunk this if you like, but on June the 30th of last year, I think it was, during a really, really hot UK summer, I think 27% of the national energy requirement was satisfied by either solar or wind. I don't know. But people do tend to adapt, don't they? And there has been a just transition before. Maybe you could give me the extraordinary example of agriculture, which is in your piece as well. That's right. I mean, I think the agriculture example is, is rather remarkable because living in today's world, particularly in Europe, it's easy to overlook or to forget in terms of employment quite how large the agricultural sector was, you know, as recently as 1900. And I've got the numbers here. If we, if we go back to, to that year, so 120 years ago, in France, the agriculture sector represented 42% of total employment. In Germany, 34%. In Italy, 59%. Move forward to 2019, in France, 3%. In Germany, 2%. In Italy, 4%. And of course, over that period, notwithstanding the two world wars, etc., the European continent has seen an extraordinary century, almost century and a quarter of, of economic growth. That's astonishing because, of course, the agricultural production has gone up while the employment has gone down. So the same thing can happen with the just transition you're talking about. That's right. There are lots and lots of other examples. But there, there is a tendency when we, we find ourselves at a crossroads at a tipping point what could feel like a cliff edge to say that this is entirely unprecedented in terms of industrial change demographic change employment change and in fact you know it's human ingenuity innovation 
technological progress, etc., finds a way. Only earlier today, I was reading another paper that's been produced internally on plastics. Incredibly interesting. The At the height of the era of horse ownership in both London and New York, there was a genuine fear and a genuine concern uh, that these two major cities were not going to be able to deal with the physical amount of horse manure and urine that was produced on a daily basis. Yes. Uh, not to mention the fact that horses at the time consumed between six and eight times as much as the human population. And this was a, a very, very grave concern. And of course, you know, that, was, that proved to be uh, very short-lived and illusory. And before long, uh, the horse population significantly dwindled as we moved towards and the internal combustion engine, and, you know, the rest is history. So my strong conviction on this is betting against our ability to solve these problems is almost always wrong. But the social element to this and the absolute imperative to ensure that the human population and cities and communities down to the individual who is thinking about his or her energy bill, that all of these actors need to be enfranchised and they need to be uh, they need to be brought along as part of this transition just and fair employment is one of the headlines of one of the paragraphs of your piece and it says here investors must be aware that a fast and prosperous new sector brings with it social and ethical challenges and social and ethical challenges are of course the realm of the politicians because on the one hand you'll have someone standing up there and say we dig coal. On the other hand, someone will say, well, we like solar and wind. And there'll be a very robust argument between the two. How are we going to get the message across that the renewable energy sector is the one for the long-term future? Because there's a lot of short-termism here as well. Yeah, there is. And at the risk of being repetitive, I think what the, if you like, the decarbonisation and the climate change awareness and the renewable energy lobby if I can call them that, need to do is to be absolutely laser focused on ensuring that the social side of these industries in terms of employment, in terms of workers' rights, et cetera, et cetera, are really, really carefully thought through because, you know, otherwise that just provides grist to the mill of some of the more, you know, populist parties, frankly, who, who want to slow this process down. And the easiest way for a political leader who does not believe in this and who does not think that the process of decarbonisation is, you know, is a political imperative, the easiest way for, for him or her to gain support is to point towards job losses and disenfranchised workers um, and disadvantaged communities, because that is where he or she, and we saw this in the US with Trump you know, pandering very, very directly to workers in, in heavy industry and the coal industry in particular. And to some degree, we've seen that most recently in Australia with Scott Morrison, you know, clutching a, a piece of coal. So that, I think, is now that the economics, I think, clearly moving in favor of, of renewable energy and of the process of decarbonization, that is where we need to, to focus our attention on the social side. There are four pillars of a just transition, according to you. It says here, social dialogue plus social protection plus employment plus rights at work. So it's very much socioeconomic. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, there are lots of real-time examples of that. And if you, know, if you look at Uber, for example, 
as a case study. And uh, in a sense, you know, the move towards electric cars, increased taxi transport, particularly in urban areas, in electric vehicles or in hybrid vehicles, you know, on the one hand, that's clearly an environmental benefit. Um, But in this case, um, and certainly historically, there has been an unintended social consequence. And, And that, in the case of Uber, has been, you know, drivers who are not properly looked after and where workers' rights, in some cases, are overlooked. So, you know, that's just a one individual company, a one individual case study of where, you, if you like, you have the environmental benefit on one hand, but also um, the social consequence on the other. Another interesting one is around battery materials, you know, the move again towards electrification, both of the transportation sector and more broadly. And now that brings with it uh, dramatically increased demand for materials like cobalt. Um, and when you look carefully at where cobalt uh, is mined and is, is, is extracted, um, you find that the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, represents around 70% of current global cobalt production. Mm-hmm. If you look more closely at that industry in the DRC, you'll find that there is a major problem um, with exploitation of child labor and general labor and working conditions and safety. So on the one hand, if you like, the, the, the extraction of cobalt uh, and the move towards uh, batteries and electrification has this, as I say, this environmental advantage and benefit and this decarbonization effect. On the other hand, you've got a very direct human consequence of it. So those, those are the sorts of areas where we as investors have to focus very, very carefully and we would argue that actually the, our role to play as allocators of capital here is in engagement with these companies. And we need to ensure that while there may be a direct environmental benefit on one side, that the, the negative social cost or consequence is eradicated. And we must make sure that these companies improve their practices so that you get an environmental benefit and also a social one. It'll be very difficult for you to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo and say, well, this is our argument here. And on the one hand, you've got your argument, which is obviously extremely compelling. On the other hand, you've got a lot of people that need to work in mines that are energy inefficient and not good for the future of the planet, if you see what I mean. Your argument... Uh, number two says the process of decarbonization is uneconomic and renewable energy is more expensive and less efficient than fossil fuels. And that is what will be thrown at you by the authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But on the other hand, of course, you're right. But in the short term, they are right as well, because that's the populist view. Well, that's where, you know, we need to ensure that awareness and understanding of the of the frontline economics of renewable energy and of the process of decarbonization are better understood. And when we look around the world and look at electricity grids in mainstream economies from the US to China to Australia, India, etc., and all across Europe, um, we find that year on year, um, the installed cost of solar and wind is coming down. Um, and in some cases, that of coal and other hydrocarbon sources of electricity are going up, um, which is in some cases um, to do with the cost of capital um, rather than the physical cost of extraction. So we're reasonably confident that that argument um, or that that defense of of hydrocarbon energy is weakening. 
which really comes back, as I said, to, to technological innovation and advancement and scientific progress. And, you know, it is astonishing that the installed cost of photovoltaic energy, of solar energy, has come down by over 99% since the 1970s. You know, these are transformative technologies. And so, so I think that part will, will, will take care of itself because at the end of the day, the economics is simply more favorable than the other. I think the social side of it and, and the, the understanding that this will not have the social consequence or social impact, that is the tougher nut to crack. Well, this is a tough nut to crack, and this disturbs me very much. This is a quote from the power minister of India. It says here, we're very concerned about the environment, but if you ask me to put it in the order of priorities, I would say having sufficient power for development comes first. Around the world, anti-coal movements are going on. Several coal-fired plants are getting shut, but we can't do that. It's mm. an extraordinary battle that you're up against here. You are battling against a movement that has been in place for a century. Well, that's right. And India is, is a very, very interesting case study because you have a strong domestic endowment of coal, particularly cheap, uh, but also pollutive coal on the doorstep. At the same time, uh, which currently uh, produces around 70% of, uh, of India's total electricity. You also have uh, somewhere between one and one and a half million citizens dying annually uh, as a result of air pollution and smog in the country. You've got an increased level of international pressure on India um, to move away from coal. And you've also got a deeply held view within the country uh, that actually it's somewhat hypocritical of the West, they themselves having modernized and urbanized on the back of the coal in the UK and in the US, etc., albeit centuries earlier. It's somewhat hypocritical of these international players now to tell India that it, it can't do it in the same way. So, you know, India is absolutely in the middle of this. So is Indonesia. Uh, South Africa faces its own extraordinary challenges uh, in terms of um, its own coal legacy uh, and also its exports of, of its own coal to India and to other countries. So, you know, we in, in the West and sitting here in London, there's a tendency to, to be somewhat insular in our thinking and look at our own domestic challenges and our own domestic politics and, and some of the recent debates and discussions here in this city. But, but actually, the big decisions need to be taken in countries like India. And that's a real challenge. Do you think that South Africa could be the poster country of renewable energy when you see the amount of sunshine there is, the amount of wind there is in certain areas of the country, whether it be coastal or inland? Don't you think that South Africa should be adopted as, they say, the poster country and start to do what Britain has done? I mean, Britain is a tiny little country with very little sun and a little bit of wind here and there, and it, on that date, June the 30th, I think it was 2018 mm. or 17. Don't you think that South Africa should adopt that mantra and get on with it? I do. I mean, if we deal with Britain in the first instance, and I think it's very commendable that Britain has made, for example, the net zero carbon commitment that it has by 2050. Britain is now the global leader in offshore wind. And as you mentioned, there was a date in midsummer last year uh, when over a quarter of, of the country's electricity came from renewable sources. All of these things are, are admirable. But in my humble opinion, Britain actually has been relatively slow to get to this point. And part of the reason that it's been slow is, is for the very same 
the very same reason that South Africa and, as we mentioned a moment ago, India has also been slow. And that is just about domestic endowment of hydrocarbons. And in the case of the UK, of course, it was it was coal. And just as coal uh, and coal's place uh, in the energy mix was beginning to come under threat or under question around safety and environmental grounds, the UK then discovered the North Sea in the 1970s. And that then came in and, and, and played its part. And so, you know, that that is very often the barrier to more progressive and more rapid uh, adoption of new energy sources. Uh, in South Africa's case, uh, around 90% of domestic electricity comes from coal. You know, if you look in more detail at, this, at the, the system in South Africa, you know, the, the, there is a huge both governance and financial uh, problem around ESCOM, around the state utility. It would be very nice to think that South Africa could South Africa could transition quickly, but there is a giant problem uh, at, at the middle of all of that, which is ESCOM. However, you know, we should look at China as an interesting example of a country which also had a huge domestic coal and oil and gas resource, but has also paved the way, particularly in solar technology and, and the manufacturing of cheap solar technology. Um, in, in, in this decarbonization process. And as we reference in the paper, of the 10 million or so global jobs currently in the renewable energy sector, over 40% are in China alone. So China has shown that it can make this transition. And it, it then begs the question, well, what, what was it about the status quo in China that led them to take this you know, relatively dramatic and speedy action and, and I would argue it was two things. One was the air pollution and smog and the negative effect on domestic health and, and on the people of China. And the other was uh, an excessive reliance on imported energy from overseas um, and the concept of energy security. And if you want to achieve true energy security and independence, then you've got to do it yourself and you've got to do it in a clean way. So it comes back to this concept of the re resource curse uh, which people often talk about in the context of emerging markets, which, which can be profitable and beneficial to countries and economies through their growth phase and can, gen can generate this exciting export market. Um, but ultimately, in the long term, it can have very, very negative consequences. And I think this is another example of it. Human beings are quite resourceful and investors are quite resourceful as well. You say as investors, we have a role to play in this transformation and it relies on four vital actions. And you put those four down quite bluntly here. Number one, integrate environmental decarbonization and social considerations in mainstream analysis. Number two, recognize that the environment and social factors can sometimes be in conflict and have been historically, I think that's my added piece there. Engage with companies on these issues in a systematic and coordinated way and be prepared to drive change through the engagement process. And your final point, the fourth point, focus on those companies that through driving positive change will see significant structural growth in the carbon transition rather than simply divesting. Lots of points there, lots of things to consider. But how important is the investment community, the asset management community, to achieving the goals that we've been speaking about for the last half hour? I think it's, um, it's enormously important. You know, we sit in, in the middle of the, of the financial ecosystem. And I think if I had to choose one of those 
four or two of those four. I think the, the first two are sort of, in, in a sense, self-evident. We need to integrate these considerations. We need to recognize that there's a, there are conflicts between environmental and social, and we need to unpick those, those knots where we can. I think on engagement, um, our role is, is clear, um, and, and, and that's where we need to do more. And there are a lot of investors, investment companies, and investment collaborations which are doing uh, great work around this, um, and there needs to be more of that. But I think the fourth one is, is really interesting because my overall observation about the way in which the financial community has addressed or has thought about um, this process of decarbonization and carbon risk um, and renewable energy, etc., over the past 10 to 20 years has been far too focused on um, the risk mitigation and the negative consequences of owning carbon companies um, in, a, in an increasingly decarbonized world, um, which has led in its most extreme form to the divestment movement. Now, I agree in spirit with much of the divestment movement in the sense that bad actors and bad companies um, need to be held to account. And in some cases, um, the threat of divestment is a very good way of, of improving their business practices. Um, we believe actually that engaging with carbon companies is a better way of improving them. Um, but more specifically, we think that investment managers um, and investors generally need to be more proactive in finding the winners of this process of decarbonization and transition rather than worrying about the threat of uh, the, the existing carbon companies. We think the really exciting investment opportunity is, is in identifying um, the enablers, the drivers, and the long-term winners of the transition. Because it, it seems to us that if the amount of capital which needs to be allocated to the process of decarbonization or to the energy transition in general, if that money is allocated on a 10, 20, 30-year basis, that's going to provide an extraordinary tailwind of structural growth for environmental companies. And that is where we're really focusing our energies. Yes, and I would say that Investec Asset Management is at the forefront of this process, a just transition. And you started before many companies did, many asset managers did. What is your process here? I mean, obviously, profit is important to your stakeholders, your shareholders, and your investors. But on the other hand, there is a, a side that is not motivated by profit. When you go home at night, Tom, do you say to yourself, well, I love the profit, but then on the other hand, I love doing good, and there's a slight conflict there. Is there a conflict? Well, I think the really interesting thing about the current opportunity in what we call environmental businesses, um, or you could also call them the winners of the energy transition, is that it presents a very compelling opportunity to capture, as I say, a multi-decade growth theme and they don't come along very often, at the same time as enabling or potentially accelerating this very, very necessary, in terms of the planet and global temperatures, um, industrial process. And, and, you know, people talk about doing well by doing good. And it's, it's a huge topic if we want to go into the history of, of responsible investing and motivations between um, you know, social or planetary or environmental good and, and financial profit on the other side. 
I, I would say that at this point in time, this this makes very, very strong investment sense, uh, as well as being unequivocally the right thing to do. That's where, for me, it's not a, a sleep at night type issue, because I yes. don't really see see any conflict. I think the two in this instance are entirely complementary. Is there a universe of companies out there that you can analyse and say, well, in the future, I think this one is going to do well, that one is going to do well for our investors, and also do well for the planet, if I can be simplistic? That's right. Yeah, we, we've constructed a universe of between seven and 800 companies that fit those criteria. We've got a very strict screening mechanism. We look specifically at scope one, two, and three emissions, and also the concept of carbon avoided. And, and of course, we also spend a significant amount of time looking at the profitability and financial health um, and, and, if you like, financial sustainability of these businesses. Because I think all too often in the past, people have focused on the first part to the slight neglect of the second. I think it's, a, it's an extraordinary investment opportunity uh, and if I had to summarize our responsibility and, and what we are endeavoring to do here, it is to allocate to these winners. It is to direct capital towards businesses that can enable this process of decarbonization. And it is to engage systematically and thoroughly and with real rigor um, with, the, with carbon companies, be they uh, in the oil and gas sector, in the mining sector, in the cement sector, in heavy industries, and ensure um, that these businesses are moving towards a full understanding and clear business strategy, uh, which is Paris compliant, uh, which encompasses uh, full recognition of scope one, two, three carbon. Um, and, 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 and by doing those two things, if you like, by holding the carbon companies to account and by directing capital towards um, those companies that will enable decarbonization, we think that we are doing the right thing and will also, we hope, generate strong returns for our shareholders. Your final paragraph says the following. Uh, the headline is, Time for Our Generation to Act. We are trying to solve the greatest challenge that humanity has ever faced, has ever faced, and current policies are failing. Current policies are failing. I'll repeat that. The generations after us are not content with our efforts either. The recent youth climate strikes around the world reinforced why we need to take more urgent action collectively to accelerate the carbon transition. On the one hand, we've got the Indian story, which we highlighted earlier in the interview. And on the other hand, we also have Trump saying at various rallies, Trump digs coal. So that's the, to my mind, and probably to yours as well, the negative side of things. But on the other hand, we've got companies like KLM, part of Air France KLM, the giant aviation company, that is telling people, don't fly with us if you don't need to, because your carbon footprint is being increased by flying with us. So there are positives, but there are negatives as well. It's an extraordinary situation, and it could go either way. That's right. That's right. And we're seeing a huge divergence in the corporate sector between even even within individual sectors and you mentioned KLM if you look at you know if you look at the airline sector and you know the 15 or 20 largest listed airlines and look at their respective positioning on carbon disclosure uh, and around management quality and governance around the transition it's incredibly wide from the good to the bad and everything in between 
And I think the same could be said for, for most of the mainstream sectors and industries. There are clear leaders in most sectors. And similarly, there are very clear laggards. And, you know, the, the leaders must continue to pave the way and to set the standard. And, and investors um, must work hard to ensure that the laggards catch up. I, th- I think to, to the point about, you know, the disaffected young voters and demonstrators, who, and we've seen them, you know, very recently in London, and we'll continue, continue to see them all over the UK. And of course, we've seen Greta and her extraordinary contribution to this subject we've seen in in France as well I do think there is a a risk here without wishing to bring it back to a political discussion but there is a risk here that the the young as I say disenfranchised disaffected uh, voter of of today or tomorrow perceives that political change at any price it has to be the way to go because if you like the establishment and the political parties of yesteryear have not dealt credibly with this climate issue. The risk is that we end up with a further move towards populist parties, and particularly far-right parties, who, as we said earlier in the discussion, have, a, have an extremely poor track record on climate policy. Mm. And that, I do think, is worth considering. Now, at the same time, we've seen the rise of the Greens in a number of major European jurisdictions, which is encouraging. But I, I do worry... Um, about, as I say, the young first, second-time voters who think that the best thing to do is simply to vote for, for change. And if there's a loud populist leader who, who's claiming to tear up the rule book and to solve all the world's problems, you m- may often find that that very same leader has a, at best, mixed and at worst, directly negative view on climate policy. Yes, the European Parliament is now represented far, far better than in previous years, in previous decades, in fact, by uh, Green parties. But at the same time, there are also the right-wing populist parties. And so there's an opposing juxtaposition of two different views going on there. But the Greens are preeminent at the moment, which is great. As the chief of the World Meteorological Organization said, as you say in your last piece, we are the first generation to fully understand climate change and the last generation to be able to do something about it. So beautifully put. You're the last asset management generation to be able to do something about it. What are you doing? Tell us about Investec Asset Management's stance towards what we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes. Well, we we see ourselves as having a huge responsibility here, coming as we do from originally from South Africa and now with a huge presence in the UK, both of which countries have, have, as we've touched on earlier in the conversation, have key roles to play. We are focusing in two main areas in the context of established hydrocarbon companies and, if you like, old energy companies and other old heavy industry companies. We see our primary role, our primary responsibility is to engage, to improve, to motivate. And we can point to numerous examples where we've been able to do that successfully, sometimes acting on our own, sometimes acting in concert with other mainstream investors. And we will continue to do that. And we will get better at it. We will get more systematic. And I I have a good level of confidence that those processes and those issues can lead to improved corporate behavior, which will help this process. That's one side. The other side is to allocate capital directly to the businesses and the subsectors which can enable and accelerate uh, this energy transition. 
because in a sense, our future lies in their hands. Uh, in the same way that the tech giants and the companies that, that enabled the IT revolution have in many ways have defined the modern world, in our view, the businesses that, are, uh, that emerge from the energy transition as the energy giants of tomorrow will have a similar responsibility. So that's, that's where we want to be directing capital. So those are the two areas on which we're most focused. At the same time, we need to ensure that all of our investments take due account um, of environmental, social, and governance considerations. And specifically, that we recognize that there will be instances where the environmental and the social can appear to be in conflict, and we need to unpick those conflicts, which is often via the process of engagement, and make sure that, you know, that, that we are doing the right thing. But engagement and positive allocation are the two pillars of our positioning around this. Sum this up in the last one minute of our conversation. How long do we have, Tom? How long do we have? Well, in in terms of global temperatures, 12 years, 2030 was the the year cited by the IPCC paper. That, That will be upon us in the blink of an eye. I think the most important thing is actually to sound a note of of optimism and aspiration rather than one of urgency and and desperation. Because, as I say, over the centuries, mankind's ability to innovate, to improve, and to progress has been truly astonishing. And that's what we need to do again. And I think there's a danger if the rhetoric and the conversation around it is too alarmist and too negative there is a danger that people fall into a sort of paralysis of fear, a kind of inertia based on desperation, really. You know, like everything else, these problems can be fixed, they can be solved. We need to ensure that social aspect and the people aspect of this energy transition is properly thought through, because without bringing individuals, towns, cities, communities, nation states with us, then this will break down. It doesn't work if old world hydrocarbon producers and exporters are simply left for dead. And it's incredibly complicated, but we've solved complicated problems before. I'm confident we will again. I'm confident as well, especially after the last 45 minutes of talking to you. That was Tom Nelson, Head of Natural Resources at Investec Asset Management in London. And we were talking about a just transition, why the climate change crisis won't be solved without social justice.